welcome to a special on location bookmark from Napa in California with the one and only Father Robert Spitzer, our guest author, his latest work, Science as a Doorstep to God, Science and Reason in Support of God, the Soul, and Life After Death, published by our friends at Ignatius Press and naturally available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. Well, Father, it's always great to actually be in the same room with you. Yeah, exactly. To talk to each other, <laughs> uh, what we're usually doing, Father Spitzer's Universe. That's we're right. actually in the same quadrant this time. That's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah. Even within proximity of each other. Absolutely. <laughs> so how many books is this for you right now? This, uh, well, uh, this one's number 14, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, hopefully it will have a good impact with uh, uh, the, the folks that are sort of on that margin there mm -hmm. um, who are looking, seeking God. Uh, they want some very good contemporaneous evidence. And there's so many things that have happened, uh, you know, just recently uh, with uh, the whole area of the soul, near-death experiences, certainly with, uh, right. um, you know, the uh, cosmology area. Uh, it's been quite remarkable. So is it interesting in a way where a lot of people's impression is the more we know, the less God seems likely. It's really the reverse. In a lot it's of really the reverse. Actually, God is just coming out more and more and more with each uh, discovery. And uh, so I, I just thought I have to write this book. And uh, that's how it. Right. Uh, well, you say in the beginning, the landscape is changing. The boundary between faith and science is breaking down. Is that a good thing that it's breaking down, and how is it breaking down? Yeah, it's breaking down because uh, there was uh, previously a little bit of animosity uh, between faith and science. Uh, some of it, you know, warranted, some of it not warranted, but most of it, you know, for a long, long time was really an antagonism that came more from the scientific community itself, though there were some uh, uh, people in the faith community that were uh, promoting it as well. The difficulty um, was that it really wasn't warranted. And now, you know, that the evidence is becoming so striking, it's, mm -hmm. it's almost undeniable. Uh, as you look at the evidence for a beginning of the universe, uh, all these, you know, supposed hypotheses that have uh, come out, you know, for a multiverse and then an infinite multiverse and then, you know, higher dimensional space, uh, you know, multiverses and things of that nature. All these things were kind of postulated to get out of a, a beginning, a creator, and now they are just not working all these explanations right. and it's turning to the point where, um, as Stephen Hawking recently put it, well, you know, um, uh, there's probably a beginning even of a multiverse. Uh, an infinite multiverse is impossible. Eternal inflation requires a beginning. And if there are bubble right. universes, right. then there are very few of them. And most of them are just like ours. Right. Wow, that's a statement that changes the landscape all right. right. Absolutely. Because now fine tuning can only really be logically explained. And you're talking about, you're not talking about economic inflation here. <laughs> right. We're talking about something to do with the, the right. cosmos. It's interesting that's too, right. and it's not directly in the book, but I'm wondering sometimes, because you're always interested in dealing with what young people especially are talking about. There's yeah. a lot of people talk about, well, what we're living in is a simulation. This is really some one giant computer simulation. Yeah. What do you say to that? Well, you know, um, a simulation can be so real that it effectively is real. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, they've taken the simulation analogies uh, so far uh, right now that uh, principally 
then the simulation operates like physics and physical processes mm -hmm. in every imaginable way. But then if you have a simulation, you have to have a simulator. And if the simulator is some intelligence outside of the universe, and that's what it would have to be. Mm -hmm. It couldn't just be a simulation from within the universe. It'd have to be a simulation that would encompass the universe itself mm -hmm. and any possible multiverse. So it's a simulation that effectively uh, takes uh, the place of a transcendent or trans physical or trans-universal mm -hmm. uh, creator. Well, wait a minute here. I think all the simulation is is trying to get a, a, a you know, a term mm -hmm. that <laughs> almost uh, by the time you're done getting this uh, simulator, uh, it sounds awful lot like a, right. an intelligent transcendent creator to Brings me. Brings back to the same starting it point. It goes back to the same starting right. point, exactly. Right. It almost seems like people are just looking for another way not to End up with the result of being that, that, that there's God. Yeah. And you say, and you've talked about this on, on our show many times, and this one you say about the New York Academy of Sciences recently came out that evidence shows that neither physiological nor cognitive processes end with death. Yeah. And does that prove there's a soul, or just does it leave it open to that idea? Well, actually, it doesn't prove per se mm -hmm. uh, there's a soul. What it indicates is there's significant evidence that uh, cognitive processes in consciousness will continue um, after uh, death. And uh, well, if death really means flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, et cetera, mm -hmm. if it really means brain death, mm -hmm. then um, there's got to be some kind of, um, uh, of a force that enables consciousness to live right. that's not in the physical body, does not originate with the brain or the physical body. And that's what one might imagine as a soul. Okay, you talk about in the first six chapters here, you say you examine the evidence for the complementarity between faith and science. So you believe that they go together. That's right. I mean, uh, basically, when you look at what's going on with cosmology and the universe today, with what's going on with uh, medical science and the survival of consciousness after bodily death, when you start looking at uh, a variety of other phenomena uh, in quantum theory, uh, the, the one thing you, you come up with is, okay, we're at a point where science really does understand the how uh, of the physical universe pretty well. Mm -hmm but it doesn't understand the why of the physical universe. And then when you put faith and reason together, uh, science and reason together, so I have, for example, a philosophical proof for the existence of God as well in chapter three. And in, you put that proof together with all the scientific evidence and you're coming very close uh, to proving that there is an unrestricted, unique, uncaused, creator of everything else that exists. Unique, unrestricted, and uncaused. Why, that sounds like God. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to say at the same time, when you combine philosophy and science, we're getting to the point where we're showing that a unique, uncaused, unrestricted, uh, intelligent, transcendent creator of everything else exists. You can prove that that mm -hmm. God exists. You can prove what a kind of a God exists, right? Uncaused and, and transcendent, intelligent and, right. and so forth. But you can't prove who God is. Mm -hmm. So even if this transcendent cause, it's unrestricted and a creator 
intelligent? Is he loving or, or is he hating? Um, is he uh, a God who answers prayers or doesn't answer prayers? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there an eternal destiny for us? Are we truly free? If we're free, how do we be free before this God? Mm -hmm. And, and you, the questions go on and right. on and on and on. Uh, does he guide us? Does he inspire us? Does he protect us? Well, these things cannot be answered by philosophy. They can't be answered uh, by uh, science, especially cosmology, or right. can't be answered by near-death experiences or terminal lucidity. Uh, so what you've got left, uh, basically, is God's going to have to reveal himself right. to us. He has to. Otherwise, we'll never know his heart. Right. We'll never know the who. Well, is this we'll where faith comes in in our lives? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. It has to fill in that space, right? Absolutely. I think right now the... The, the current proofs for the existence of God are very good. Yeah. The scientific evidence for intelligent creators, very good. I do think the scientific evidence of a transphysical soul and an afterlife is very good. You start putting it all together and you got a lot of what's right. and a lot of that's, um, that these things do exist, that there's a good ground of our faith. But who God is, the heart of God, that's absolutely gonna take faith. Because you're gonna have to look around you and you're going to have to say, okay, right. there is, you know, at least with the major religions of the world, seven options to choose from. And so you might think, well, which one is the best? Which one is, 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 is going to be correct? Now, of course, we can even apply reason to that, too. We see Jesus' resurrection and the evidence for it, especially if you take a relic like the Shroud of Turin, something of that nature. You look at the Eucharistic miracles, things of that nature. Right. You can actually begin to get some sense that really Jesus is right. truly who he said he was, the Son of God. But more than that, uh, you can also right. get a, a very good sense of, well, what about his doctrine then? If he's, if this uh, thing about the resurrection is true, that the gift of the Spirit was given, if the, the disciples were working miracles in the name of Jesus, um, you know, uh, and the powerful name of right. Jesus, etc. All these things, you put it together and you say, well, Maybe his doctrine about love. What is that? Uh, right. Maybe do? I should pay more attention to what somebody like this said. Yep, exactly. And, and what his apostles taught. Now you talk yeah. about in a section about the idea of are scientists really atheists? And you point out, and you have on the show before, 51% of scientists profess a belief in God. But I thought this was interesting. According to the same survey, 66% of young scientists yeah. profess a belief. Why do you think it's growing? Well, I think uh, part of the reason was some of the things I just mentioned. Yeah. But I think the phenomenon of miracles, uh, miracles is really important mm -hmm. with that group. Now, obviously, some of these scientists grew up in a religious household, maintained their religion, but they generally maintain their religion for good reason. But I think one of the things that, that clearly went on, I, I was interested when I saw the um, NCI research and uh, Finkelstein um, Institute research of uh, physicians who believed in miracles. Right. When I saw 74% of physicians believe in miracles, I thought, what in the world? And it turns out, that the reason they do is they see it all the time in their own practice. And they can't explain they it. They can't explain it, and it's really getting to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. But near-death experiences, too. Uh, those near-death experiences and things like terminal lucidity, mm -hmm. where you can clearly see that there is not only um, a soul that are, will survive bodily death, but that soul has been in contact with something transcendent and transformative. Right. It's that kind of thing that really does... Um, begin to affect 
these um, physicians, but not just right. physicians. I think it also affects uh, scientists. Right. I think what's going on with the young scientists today too is they're taking these fine-tuning for life, um, they, these so-called cosmic coincidences, very seriously. Uh -huh. and, and the reason that, that, that they are taking it seriously is because it's very, very difficult to explain like our low entropy. I mean, you just can't, you know, just postulate an infinite multiverse anymore. Mm -hmm. All these doors are slamming. Mm -hmm. And because they're slamming, uh, you know, um, uh, they've got to find something that's authentic to the scientific right. physical data that they're exploring. Right. And God and intelligent transcendent creators, not a bad option. There you go. In fact, it may be the very most believable option. Right. Well, you say that the reason these studies are so important, you want to put them out, is to help dispel the popular uh, belief out there that science and atheism, in a sense, go hand in hand. Yeah. And they really don't. And then you point out, you know, which obviously as Catholics we have some knowledge of, it's also worth noting that most of the originators of modern physics were religious believers, Galileo, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, uh, yeah. Max Planck, etc. Yeah, James Clerk Maxwell. I mean, you go even Einstein. Although he was a, a, a deist, he wasn't religious, but he still, uh, you know, believed in a kind of a, a universal mind and intelligence. Yeah, let me ask you that. That's sort. always the question I always wonder. Why is the option if you if you're not you know you, I kind of don't believe in God. And I'm not a but I become a deist. What is the attraction of deism for some of these? People? I think, uh, you know, it, it probably goes back all the way to the time of the Enlightenment, but basically they don't want a God who's moral or going to impose uh, morality okay. on us or will be a moral agency to which I'm going to have to be beholding or uh, somehow um, I'm going to have to be... Uh, um, uh, responsible to. So all of these things combined, that's one thing. I don't think that was a re the reason for Einstein's mm -hmm. uh, atheism. I just think the question of suffering was paramount in the mind of Einstein, you know, that, you know, of course, maybe there's this universal mind, but he just lets things go. And that's why there's suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And and I, I just don't think he could answer that question. Uh, he, he really, I think, thought that um, you know, evil, um, especially the evil that took place during the right. Second World yeah, War. Nazi Germany know. and yeah, it's just all going on it, in the 30s. It, really right. hard to explain. Right. Yeah, and so I think that was his major problem. And that's the second big error. Especially in seemingly normal good people doing horrible things. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so when you have these things, if you try and put it together, you know, maybe I think Einstein is sort of that, well, you know, I guess God's there as an intelligent mind that's creating... Uh, you know, a very mathematically descriptive and explanatory universe from its top to its bottom, but he just doesn't interfere with human affairs. He doesn't impose a morality. He just lets things go. Uh, he's neither, you know, fish nor fowl. Mm -hmm. You know, he's basically uh, um, a, um, uh, an indifferent God. Right. Uh, I think uh, Jefferson um, uh, didn't have he was more uh, worried about the miracles and the moral agency. Yeah, he took them uh, out of scripture. Didn't yeah, he did. He cut it out. Cut it right out of his Bible. Right, right. So, uh, but uh, yeah, but uh, so you can see, you know, there are various reasons for deism, but I think it's one or a combination of uh, suffering or moral responsibility to an agency outside of myself, 
or miracles or some combination. And as you allude to earlier, you talk about in the book what science can prove and what science can't prove. You kind of went yeah. through. Now, there's this, what's intersubjective? What is the realities that are, are intersubjective? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about uh, intersubjectivity, that's, okay, we're two, hum we're two conscious, self-conscious subjects, yet we're relating to each other uh, here, and there is a kind of a connection. Intrasubjectivity is, I've got my own little interior world. I've got, um, you know, I'm not just aware of my hand, I'm aware of being aware of my hand. Mm -hmm. And when this happens, you get that double back, the self-reflectivity, uh, we call it intersubjectivity because basically I've got an inner world that's quite distinct from the outer world that we share together. I can't get into your inner world unless you reveal it to me and you can't get into my inner wor world until I reveal it to you. So we just call it intersubjectivity that you know, you've got to actually, as it were, uh, something inside of you uh, that is divisible uh, from the whole outer world uh, of shared experience. Right. Now you talk about uh, the concept of scientism. We hear it once in a while. What, what is scientism? Scientism just brings science uh, to an intolerable extreme. Mm -hmm. It basically says, in, any, in, in order for anything to be valid knowledge, basically it has to be scientifically falsifiable and verifiable. In other words, you have to be able to disprove it with science if it, if it is to be disproved. And um, if it's not disproved, then it has to be uh, verified. Mm -hmm. So, well, once you subject, you know, um, uh, all knowledge to that claim, well, first, of course, that's a self-refuting claim anyway, mm -hmm. because all knowledge uh, cannot be, you know, proved by empirical facts. So that's, that's, uh, uh, so by its own criteria, uh, criterion, um, mm -hmm. you know, scientism defeats itself and in fact proves itself to be invalid. But the other problem, of course, is it narrows the whole world out there. Everything that's immaterial, everything that's divine, everything that's infinite, everything that's a universal, everything that's, uh, you know, an ultimate cause or, or linked to ultimate causality, everything that, you know, belongs to the whole interior world of intuition, the, you know, perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home, all the, the ideas of aesthetics, of love, of morality and conscience, all of it just goes away mm -hmm. because science, uh, you know, being grounded in observable data can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, uh, the world becomes not only a much less interesting place, but one that is almost uh, insignificant mm -hmm. uh, to the human soul, which is seeking meaning in the uncaused, the unconditioned, the, the unrestricted intelligibility uh, of things. It's seeking, right. uh, you know, the uh, um, uh, love and beauty and goodness and, and, and home and truth on, on, on this transcendent level. I mean, uh, scientism just de-guts the human soul. Right. Now you talk about something here in dealing with science and what it can do and what it can't do. The, the differentiation between factual truths versus universal truths. That's right. So a universal truth is like a claim that says all or only or um, uh, uh, uniquely or um, uh, none or anything that has, you know, something that pertains to the, to the set of all reality would be a universal claim. And so um, if I say uh, there's only one unconditioned reality or there can be only one unconditioned reality in, in the whole of reality, there you go, it's a universal claim. Um, and uh, of course, universal claims are not validated by what we call 
uh, observable facts. Mm -hmm. uh, observable facts are always conditioned by the space and time in which the observation was made or is being made. Now, in the case of a universal, we can prove it mm -hmm. by the principle of non-contradiction, or you can prove it logically, or like in mathematics, you can prove it. Mm -hmm. So you can't prove a squared plus b squared equals c squared by seeing a whole bunch of observations. I see. Uh, so what you're going to have to do is show this by a set of postulates, which shows well, that the hypotenuse, the square of the hypotenuse of the triangle. Is that still true with the new math? I'm not sure if that's still true. <laughs> I, think, I think that might be. You better check your facts. They may be rearranged. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> you also talk about the concept of uh, the constraint of science uh, of induction, that scientists do not know what they do not know until they have discovered it from observational data. That's right. So there's a whole world of things out there that science doesn't know right now. First of all, science can't know anyway what's beyond the universe with scientific methodology because scientific methodology can't get beyond the observational data of the universe. Now, the, uh, a scientist can imply, infer, that there is something beyond the physical universe because of seeing limits within the universe. So if you can prove a limit to past time in our universe or a limit to past time in a multiverse or something of that nature, then you really are bordering upon something more fundamental like a creative force outside of space-time asymmetry. Now that mm -hmm. uh, would clearly be some evidence. However, to disprove uh, a God by science, for example, you could not do that. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that with scientific observation because you can't just take data from within the universe to disprove what you don't know right. uh, exists beyond the universe. If something exists beyond the universe, it ex exists beyond our event horizon, not subject to science. <clears throat> so that's the problem with science. They don't know uh, what they don't know until they have discovered it through observational data. But they seem very certain about it. At <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people making a whole lot of claims uh, in that area, but that's why you have these, uh, you know, brusque philosophers right. that are out there uh, to bring it back uh, so with, to reality. So with, with all this high-end scientific discussion, you bring in John Henry Newman. Why? Yeah. Well, Newman had, you know, a solution to... Um, you know, he wanted to bring science into the picture mm -hmm. as part of the affirmation of God. So what he developed was uh, what was called an informal inference. He said, look, you know, uh, an informal inference can be uh, basically taking a look at the um, uh, corroboration and the, um, uh, you know, the uh, mutual um, uh, uh, reciprocity of uh, various antecedently probable data sets in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. So for example, if um, I can show you from fine tuning of, of um, uh, uh, constants in the universe that there is a high probability uh, of an intelligent creator, or I can show you from the board of a Lincoln and Guth proof and from the entropy evidence that there's a high possibility of a beginning which implies a creator. Or, and then I can still, I'm piling it up, right? Mm -hmm. I can show you from near-death experiences that there's a strong likelihood, probability, um, you know, antecedently probable, right? So it's, uh, there's a probability that your soul will survive bodily death. Mm 
So you have all these antecedently probable things, but as you kind of put it together, um, and you can see that they begin to form a mutually corroborative uh, set of evidential bases pointing to one thing, that there is a God that exists and an afterlife that exists, and the God who is out there is controlling the afterlife, which is beyond our physical processes and universes. You say in this book we'll discuss six major sets of evidence making use of the mm -hmm. others that were listed here right about based on 15 scientific and scholarly studies as well as one metaphysical proof of God and then you mm -hmm. go on to explain about six sets of evidence concerned. Mm -hmm. Now as you mentioned are you stacking these things up because you want to show the average person or the person who might be doubting how much evidence there is behind well, what you're saying? Yeah well that's always part of the reason but really the true reason is because it in it puts together what Newman called an informal inference. Okay. So the minute you put together all of these things that point to the same conclusion, let's say, of you God. You don't have to make the conclusion for them. You don't. You lead them to the answer. You lead them to the answer and also because it's mutually corroborative, mm -hmm. if one of the things, uh, you know, turns out to need modification, it's not going to affect the whole group of data. So the, the rest of the data kind of remains stable if you have to, you know, modify uh, one of the uh, the elements that you had previously depended on. So that's how Newman got around mm. the antecedently probable point. It wasn't certain in itself, but there was uh, a strong probability, and then you put together right. a dozen strong pro probabilities from different uh, tor uh, tests and sources, then uh, what you uh, wind up with is uh, a pretty strong informal right. inference that's really gonna stand yeah. the test of time showing the strong likelihood of a transcendent uh, creator God. You say, as we shall see uh, about the conclusions, we learned a lot, and you kind of mentioned this before, the what of God, but not a much about the who of God. How do we find out about the who of God? It's got to be through the revelation of God himself. Mm -hmm. He's the only one that can reveal his interiority and what is going on. So um, even though we can say, well, at the end of the day, I put together all the evidence, and I think it's a very, you know, the preponderance of evidence, evidence very probatively shows that there exists a unique, uncaused, unconditioned, unrestricted, um, uh, transcendent, intelligent reality that is the creator of everything else. Now, um, you can put that together, but that's a, just a big what. Mm. Well, is that like Einstein's deistic God? Uh, is is that uh, kind of a Eugene Wigner's, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, sort of mathematical God? Is is uh, uh, or is that like the the God of love of the Christian religion? And right. the only way you're going to find that out is if God reveals Himself. But a strikingly good reasonable case <clears throat> can be made for. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ as the Son of God <coughs> just from the reasonable historical scientific evidence that's available. That, that sounds like a good answer uh, from our, for our viewers and for an EWTN book show. Thank you so much, <laughs> Father Robert Spitzer, as always, the author of Science at the Doorstep to God, Science and Reason in Support of God, The Soul and Life After Death, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, of course, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. This has been a special on location from Napa with Father Robert Spitzer. I'm Doug Keck for Bookmark. We'll see you next time. Thanks.